Well, Cedar Street Baptist Church, can I tell you once again, I love you. And I'm so grateful uh, for all that God has done. Brother Larry, thank you for your prayer of invocation this morning as we prepared our service. We, of course, remember those who were affected by the storm in very challenging ways, but we're grateful to be here today. Um, the chaos of Friday, expecting the eye of the storm to hit, was, was replaced by the restoration of Saturday with Georgia Southern putting 54 on Savannah State. And then, uh, of course, the University of Georgia giving us a scare, but then pulling things out in the end. Both, both games reminding us that things are as they should be. But uh, I say all that to set us up for the message here today. You know, I think that sights, sounds, and smells that cue our brains to certain moments of our lives. Um, obviously, when I think of football, I think of the fall. Okay, some people on Facebook, you start seeing all these posts about pumpkin spice lattes, and, and then you, th- you hear the sound of the, the referee's whistle, all right, and the sound of the guys grinding it out on the offense and defensive lines, and you think about the changing of the seasons. You know, as I began to study the message this week, I began to think of actually a word, not really a sound or a sight, but a word that cued my brain to an entire season of my life. I've shared with all of you during my time in seminary, I did everything I could to pay the bills. Uh, I spent a couple of days at the deli department of a grocery store. That did not really work out. But then I became a sweeper truck driver for 11 months. And then after that, of course, I worked at the seminary as an assistant registrar. But I want to go back to that second job. I worked for Asphalt Enterprises in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I was a sweeper truck driver. So my shift was from 9 p.m. until about 7 or 8 a.m. And I had an 8.30 class that I had to be on campus for, so it was always a rush to get into class. And if I close my eyes, I can picture the entire process of my work shift beginning. I can hear the the creak of the 15 wooden stairs that I had to climb to the office building on the second floor. I remember opening that door and walking in, and that office building had this old tan carpet with oil stains and dirt stains. I can remember the smell of gasoline. And I remember walking into the right side of the office and opening the door and walking over to, uh, to clock in, typing in my employee code. And then there was a pegboard on the wall. And on the wall, I had my clipboard with my 15 stops on my route, and I had a pen so I could mark each stop, and then I had a hat to put on and my gloves, and then I had the keys to the truck. And the last thing I would grab before I'd go on my shift was a GPS. Now, those of you who don't know me that well should know that I am very technologically challenged, and I was pretty late to the game when it came to a GPS. So even when I began to use it, I also would ignore it. And so I'd go on these shifts, and so my shifts were about 90-minute shifts in in the area of North Carolina that we call the Triangle, okay? That is Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, and um, the whole outskirts of Wake Forest and that whole area, the Triangle area. It's about a 90-mile radius. And if you're driving in the middle of the night in a 90-mile radius in a place that you've never been and that you don't know very well, if you don't have a GPS or if you decide not to trust in your GPS, which was my problem, you begin to stare at this word that comes across the GPS, and that word says recalculating. <laughs> and it's, Okay, you, you understand that word. That word triggers so many emotions inside of me. Recalculating, recalculating, recalculating. There was many times that I'd plug the, the, the thing in the GPS, but then I, I thought I know better how to get here than the GPS does, even though I hadn't been to half the stops I was going to. And I would look down, And I would see that word over and over again, recalculating, recalculating. 
Most of the time, if, you, if you've never had a GPS, that word recalculating means that you are going in the wrong direction or you have missed a very important turn and it's going to take you longer to get back on track. I learned this concept the hard way. And when you're lost in the middle of the night, 90 miles from home, and everyone you know is fast asleep, you learn to stop trusting in yourself and start trusting in the only source that knows how to get you right back on the path you were supposed to be to begin with. How would I define recalculating? It's one word on an electronic device that has the power to change everything. This word forces me to admit that I'm lost. It makes me confess that after choosing my own path, I now know I am not capable of reaching my destination. It also offers me the opportunity to trust in a source outside of myself to find my way, a source that will redirect me onto an alternate path to take me where I'm meant to be. Today, we continue our journey through the book of Mark. We're in our third sermon here, the third message through the book of Mark in our series that we've entitled, Jesus Is... Two weeks ago at the start of the book of Mark, we talked about the prophecy of Christ's ministry. Yes, last week we talked about the preparation of Christ's ministry, and today we'll hear him speak for the very first time. And like the bright glow of that electronic GPS outshining the evening shadows of a sweeper truck dashboard, Christ comes with a new message and a new path for those who are lost in darkness and need to recalculate their journey. So... Take our Bibles, if you have it, turn it to, or turn it on, for some of you, to Mark chapter 1, as we read verses 14 through 20 together and find this new message and new path through what we'll call the gospel commands of Christ. Again, we're in Mark chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 14 through 20, and if you could stand out of the reverence of the reading of God's holy and infallible and inerrant word, we'll read God's word together. Again, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. Here, the word of the Lord, starting in verse 14, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 19. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you for this beautiful day that you have made. Father, today I thank you for the gospel. Let there never be a day that we don't stop and thank you for the gospel. Let this never be a word. Let this never be a message. Let this never be anything that we think we have gotten past. Father, I pray as we look deeply into your word today that you would help us to have a new and a fresh and a deeper understanding and response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you'd be with me at this time. I pray that you'd quiet my heart and mind and that you would take my tongue captive for I know the message prepared is meaningless words without the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, please anoint those words that the glory and honor would be yours. And Father, for anyone here today who has never heard this message 
or maybe has heard it so many times that it's become numb to them, open up their hearts and their minds to receive it and to respond to it in repentance and faith in your son. Father, be with us in this time. Let this, let this message be a true act of worship in every way possible. In Jesus' name we pray, and God's people said, amen. Please be seated. So we said when we started the book of Mark, we talked about John the Baptist and his ministry as the proclaimed prophet from Isaiah who would come in the wilderness, making the way straight for Jesus to come. And then last week we talked about the preparation of Christ's ministry, the 30 years of being raised up in Nazareth, and then of course the baptism, and then finally the temptation in the wilderness. And now we hear Jesus speak. For those of you who have red letter Bibles, these are the first words written in red in the book of Mark. And, and I do want to say before we get to that, I do have a red letter Bible actually in my hand right here. But let's know for sure that the words written in black are every bit as powerful as the words written in red because it is all the Word of God. But let us look at those red words and see where Jesus begins to verbally speak to us. And what is he talking about? Well, before we get to the first of the three commands of the gospel, let me first walk us through verse 14 as we see this transition taking place. 14 says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. All right, let's stop right there. Here's the transition. Verse 14, John the Baptist was arrested. Now, why do we know that these type of things are going to happen? Well, in other Gospels, we kind of put the picture together. John the Baptist came for one specific purpose, to prepare the way of the Lord. And it says in John, after he has done this, in John 3, verse 30, he says, he must decrease, meaning John the Baptist, and Christ must increase. His calling and his ministry were coming to a close as he is arrested by Herod Antipas, where he would later have his head put on a silver platter. So John the Baptist's ministry is coming to a close, and Mark is preparing the readers for Jesus' ministry to begin. And it begins by Jesus saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. He's proclaiming the gospel. So what is the word gospel? You know, in, in Awana, every Wednesday night, I have the TNT boys right there on the first pew on the far right. And every single week before we get to our lesson, I spend five minutes going over what is the gospel, what is the gospel, what is the gospel. When I was a youth pastor here, over and over again, I see Abby smiling, what is the gospel, what is the gospel, what is the gospel. I repeat it not just for the sake of repeating it, because it's the single most important concept and message that we will ever know or understand. So simply put, gospel means good news. It means good news. We'll talk more throughout the course of this message about specifically why this is good news and what the good news is, but we need to understand gospel is good news. Well, the, the folks who have been reading this, of course, Mark is writing to the folks in Rome, okay, non-Christians in the Roman Empire, shortly after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. They would have understand, understood the word gospel because it wasn't just a religious word back then. All right, the gospel means good news that brings joy, but this word was used outside the religious world, and Romans would have understood it. Gospel meant history-making, life-altering news as opposed to what they would have heard each and every day. In other words, put this in the context of 2016. Gospel is more than just what you read on Facebook or Twitter today. It's news that's going to rock your world. It's not just something you've seen on social media. It's something that is getting ready to turn your life upside down gospel. 
And we begin the gospel by Jesus saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And so we, we first see this concept of the kingdom of God. Now, I, in churches for years, I've heard people say, God, want to build your kingdom, want to build your kingdom. What in the world does it mean, kingdom of God? Let's define our terms so that we understand. Because, you know, think about it logically. Well, God is creator of all things heaven and earth, and he's still sovereign over this earth. So that means that this is his kingdom, right? Wrong. Even though God is sovereign over all things, initially, when Adam and Eve were created in the garden, there was perfect union between God and man. There was perfect obedience to God. There was perfect provision from God to man. And there was a perfect kingdom being established. And God's original concept, his original blueprint, was to take these two human beings in a garden, and the garden would get bigger, and it would get bigger, and it would get bigger, and it would get bigger. The kingdom of God would have been established in a garden. Sin entered the world. Disobedience of Eve and then Adam enters into the garden, and God kicks them out. And he doesn't let them back in the garden. He puts the cherubim at the gate so they can't get back in the garden. Why can't they get back in the garden? Because if they eat of the tree of life, they will forever be in a nature of fallen sin. So he casts them out of the garden into the world of darkness. And that's the kingdom that we live in today. We live in a kingdom of darkness and evil where sin reigns. And you know how I know that? Because you and I were born into that nature whether we liked it or not. We said this last week. You're not sinners because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. It's a part of your nature. It's a part of who you are. And the reason that we struggle sometimes to see this is because we're constantly measuring our own lives by the standards of the world instead of the standards of God. By the standards of God, no one in this room would ever dare say, I'm a good person. But according to the standards of the world, many of you would have leverage to say those things because according to the world, you may be a good person, but not according to the standards of God. So what is the kingdom of God? If this is the kingdom of darkness, Jesus comes into the world and he's taking all old things and making them new. He's taking broken things and he's fixing them. He's taking what is lost and he's redeeming them. The kingdom of God is a redeemed kingdom. All right? And the kingdom has not been fully consummated yet. All right? God is establishing his kingdom through the church right now. Redeemed souls who have received the Holy Spirit, who are coming under the dominion of God, who are living for his will, who are obedient to all of his ways, and being recreated into the image of Jesus Christ. That's the kingdom of God. And it's not been fully consummated yet. It's begun all right? during Pentecost, of course, Christ goes up, the Spirit comes down, the kingdom is being established, but it will not be consummated until the second coming of Jesus Christ. When Christ returns, he will come in glory and he will make all things new. And those who have professed faith in him will live on a resurrected earth in a resurrected body, and that will be the fully consummated kingdom of God. But right now, we are building the kingdom in preparation for him to come and complete all things. So we, this world is not the kingdom of God. But we're working towards building that kingdom. And he's starting through the local church because we started in a garden. Sin kicked us out of that garden. But we will be returning as we look in Revelation to a garden again, will we not? The new Jerusalem. And we will partake of the tree of life. And that garden will continue to grow and it will be under the full dominion of God and that is the kingdom. Now Jesus is coming to say the kingdom of God is at hand. This process is beginning. 
And he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, and now we see the first of what will be three commands of the gospel that I'll share with you here today. Jesus says, repent. Number one, Christ commands us to repent. This has got to be shocking to Christians in America who never or rarely have read the scriptures. And again, a couple weeks ago, I talked about all these different versions of Jesus Christ, and Most of us don't think of Christ's first words out of his mouth to be repent, but that's exactly what he says. This is the very first imperative that Christ gives in this book. And this imperative is not another law that instructs the people to do something. It's a command to stop doing something and turn in a completely different direction. It's a command to take your own life, your own goals, your own dreams, and lay them at the altar of God and say, not my will, but yours. It is moving completely in one direction, realizing that your will is not God's will and turning 180 degrees around and moving the other way. That's repentance. It's not just confessing. That's the first stage of it. But repentance is completely turning and making a 180 degree direction in your life. And that's the first thing that Jesus says. Repent. Stop the way you're going. Turn around. I've got a new message and I've got a new way. Will you follow me? When you think of Christ, are those the first words that you think about? Think about that for a minute. Again, we talked about a couple weeks ago, guided by the guardrails of grace and truth, grace and truth, grace and truth. And some people race too far to the side of grace, and they see Jesus as loving and caring and nurturing, but they don't ever see him as someone who would speak boldly and say, repent of your sin. But then there are people who do go too far on the side of truth and not enough grace, and they see Jesus as bringing holiness into the world, but they don't see that God still speaks with a tone of grace through his Son. He's lovingly calling you to repent, to repent, to repent. I had a uh, friend of mine back in Philadelphia who was living in some pretty significant sin, and she said to me, you know, I haven't been to church in years, but I, you know, I, I hear people all the time talking about repentance and this and this and this. When I, when I read the scriptures, I saw Jesus going to all the sinners that nobody else would go to and, and showering them with love and, and, and doing things that nobody else would do. Christians seem to exclude everybody, but Jesus seemed to include everybody. Well, that's kind of a twisted message in some ways, and here's why. Jesus did go to the sinners that no one else would go to. And Jesus did bring love, and he did bring grace, but he brought a message. And that message was turn away from your sins. In Mark chapter 2, verse 17, we'll preach through this in a few weeks, he sa- it says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There's a tacit assumption there that sinners are not going in the right direction. And then John 5, verse 14, after he healed an invalid who had been inflicted for 38 years, what does Jesus say? Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. American Christianity in 2016 is burying this message because we want to have Jesus on our own terms. He does come in love, and he does come in grace, but he comes with a message And that message starts with the word, repent. So let me ask before we move on to our second command of the gospel. What is Jesus calling you to repent of this very day? Is your life headed in a direction that doesn't lead to him? Are you growing closer to God or further away from him? 
all of us right now, we walked into this room Labor Day weekend, and our lives are like these movies that are playing out right now. And each one of us have a different movie. All right? But your life, is, are you living in a scene right now in that movie that would not be pleasing to God? Have you said things that are not pleasing to Him? Have you had thoughts that are not pleasing to Him? Have you had actions that are not pleasing to Him? Do you, do you hear the Spirit of God calling you to repent? Do you hear the Spirit of God reaching out to you right now and saying, your life is not pleasing me. I need you to confess that. Turn in the other direction and follow me. This is the first command of the gospel. Repent, repent, repent. But it's not the first command. It's not the only command. Number two, Christ commands us to believe. Okay, if he commands us to repent, he also commands us to believe. We not only turn away, but we're turning towards something else. The second part of verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. If the gospel is good news, then to believe the gospel is to believe what Jesus is saying is both true and good for us. Believing in the gospel is to believe in Christ himself. It's believing that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that Christ is the Savior we have been searching for the entire time. Now, this news is a shock. It's a shock to the Jews at that time, the, the non-Christians also who are reading this in Rome. It's a shock to us who are reading this in 2016. But let me start about biblical times. To the audience that Mark is writing to, here's why this news is shocking. The Jews were the covenant people of God under the laws of Moses. They expected a Messiah to come as this mighty warrior that would slay the Romans and restore the nation of Israel to world prominence. When Christ comes preaching repentance directly to the Jews and then commands them to believe in him, a carpenter's son from Nazareth, who was not a mighty warrior but a suffering servant, they must have thought he was nuts. They're waiting for the second King David, this mighty warrior, knight in shining armor, to come and slay the Romans. And then you got Carpenter's son from a little town called Nazareth. We said last week, it was said in the scriptures, has anything good come from Nazareth? This little dot on the map that, by the way, my GPS uh, would not have picked up on. But yet, that's what he says. Believe in me, the Carpenter's son. Believe in me. Believe in my message. Believe also in me. Believe in where I'm going. Believe in what I'm doing. Believe in the good news that the kingdom of God is here. Now, that's shocking to that audience, but it's also shocking to us today. Let me tell you why in 2016, this is a shocking message. Today, to believe in the message of the gospel is shocking because of its exclusivity. Here's what I mean by that. We live in a world of so many different religions philosophies and ideas, society considers it intellectual suicide and political incorrectness to say that we believe in Christ as the only way to God. It's a stumbling block. People can't possibly believe there's one way to God. And I wouldn't believe it unless I saw it from my own eyes in his word. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man gets to the Father but by me. You know what? I believe it. And I'm commanded to believe it. It is not a suggestion. It is an imperative. Believe in the gospel. Believe in Jesus Christ. So what does believe mean? 
When the New Testament talks about the word believe, it means a continuous action of moving towards and leaning more progressively on something or someone outside of yourself, mainly Jesus Christ. We see belief as a moment in time where we quote-unquote accept Christ as our Lord and Savior and receive our ticket to eternal life. But to believe in Christ is to repent of our former direction and to continue over and over seeking and leaning on His love, on His mercy, on His grace, on His provision, on His purpose for our life, on His convicting Holy Spirit. And this belief in Him will always be manifested in our obedience to Him. You can say till you're red in the face, I believe in Jesus Christ, but your life will bear whether you truly believe in him or not. Because you will be faced in things of life where you're either going to go Christ's direction or you're going to go your own direction. And those who truly believe in him will repent and follow him. Will repent and follow him. You know, before we move on to point number three, I'll just say again, It's one of my greatest burdens as a pastor. We talk about believing, and most of you who have placed your faith in Christ, you see this as a past tense event. Uh, 1975, I placed my faith in Jesus Christ. I believed, E.D., past tense. But in the original language, in the Greek, over and over, this is continuous action. Continue to believe in, continue to trust in, continue to lean upon over and over and over again. He's saying, believe in me, believe in me. In the hospital room, he's saying, believe in me, believe in me. In the office, he's saying, believe in me, believe in me. In the house, with conflict with with spouses and with children, he's saying, believe in me, believe in me, believe in me, believe in me. This is a continuous action through the course of your entire life. Christ says, believe in me. He commands us to repent. He commands us to believe. And the third and final command of the gospel, Christ commands us to follow. Let's look one last time, verses 17 through 20. It says, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately they called, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now, let me just say in the few moments we have left, this is a unique command. All right, If we were to live in biblical times, and if we were Jewish and we heard this command, it would be unique to us. And the reason why is this. Rabbis did not call pupils to follow them pupils had to go to the rabbis and said, can I follow you? Please teach me. Jesus flips everything upside down. Jesus is the rabbi and the good teacher who not only reaches out to the people, but he calls to them instead of them calling to him. And he says, follow me. And the people legitimately followed him. For, for these fishermen to follow him, it meant more than just casting down their nets and getting off the boat for a couple hours. It meant leaving family. It meant leaving the trade. Okay, If you're a fisherman, that's probably all you know. Simon and Andrew growing up on the Sea of Galilee, that sea was their life. It's not like you can go on University of Phoenix online and get another degree. That's not happening. You're not getting a second degree at age 40. If you've been a fisherman all your life and someone calls you to leave that trade, leave your family, leave your friends and follow a man who you know is the carpenter of a town that barely on the map and you don't know where he's going or what he's doing, that's faith. 
Now, let's make this practical in 2016 because Jesus may not necessarily be calling you to leave your family and leave your friends and leave your job and leave your town to follow him, although he might. I don't think he'd call you to leave your families, but maybe your town. But let's make this practical. How do you follow Jesus Christ in 2016? Well, Luke chapter 9 Verses 23 through 24, he gives us plain and simple language. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This means we are to live and obey his every word. To follow him is to obey him. We don't just read his word, we do what it says. And we don't follow him... Just to be sensitive to the Spirit, we be sensitive to the Spirit by responding to the Spirit. When we're convicted to change the way that we spend our money, spend our time, treat our spouses, serve our neighbors, we make those changes because we are committed to following Him. Every day where you are, don't care what your job is, don't care what neighborhood you live in, don't care what your family situation, if you're married or single, if you've got kids or no kids, Grandkids, neighbors, uncles, aunts, nieces, nephews, friends, whatever situation you're in, you have in your life, God is saying, where you are, follow me, obey me, make the next right decision that you know to make. And as you continue to do what God calls you to do, he begins to reveal more of what he's calling you to do in his life, in your life, excuse me, follow him. Because he is the God who created you. Follow him because he knows what will bring him glory and you joy. Follow him because he has done for you what you could never have done for yourself. Follow him because he will make all things new and bless you eternally for your obedience. Follow him because he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. That brings us to our conclusion here. And our conclusion is this. The gospel of Christ commands our threefold response Will you repent? Will you believe? Will you follow? Again, let me caution everybody in this room today. Is this message for those who've never heard the gospel and have never placed their faith in Christ? Yes. Is this message for those who've been following Jesus Christ for 50 years? You better believe it. The gospel, I always sum it up in this way. The gospel means that God is holy and loving. And he created Human beings made in his image to be holy and loving. Sin entered the world and tainted that holiness and that love. And Christ came to restore that love and that holiness. And he did it by living perfectly, earning our righteousness, dying sacrificially, taking on our punishment, being raised supernaturally, giving us eternal life, ascending to the Father, sending us his Holy Spirit, and coming back a second time to establish his kingdom. He went to all that trouble through his perfect life, death, resurrection, ascension, and second coming. And what he asks us to do is repent. We're going in this direction, making my own decisions. I'm turning away and following him. He calls us to believe. Stop trusting in the decisions I am making in my life and allow the Holy Spirit to guide me so that I don't have to look down at that GPS and see that word recalculating. And he calls us to follow step by step, step by step, step by step. If you don't know exactly how to follow Jesus Christ, the best advice I could give you is do the next right thing and continue doing the next right 
thing. And through the course of your life, if you have a life that is compiled of doing the next right thing according to the Spirit of God, then you will have known and received the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, again, we love you so much. And Father, I pray for myself, and I pray everyone at the sound of my voice would know that this message is for everyone at every stage in the process of following you. Father, for those who have never met your Son, do not know him as Lord and Savior, have never repented of their sins. Father, I pray today you would convict their hearts and minds in such a way in removing the heart of stone and replacing it with the heart of flesh that they would respond to this message in repentance, belief, and in following you. And Father, for everyone in this room who does know Jesus, that they would see that this is a continual action, Father, that today, of things that are not pleasing you, that they would repent and believe and follow. I pray that for myself and everyone in your house today. Father, we thank you for the gospel. It is truly good news. Let us respond to it in a way that honors you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.